Hello and welcome. You're listening to Building with People for People, the Unfiltered Build podcast, where we talk to people behind the tech, explore their journeys, and make sense of what and how we build through a human lens. Today's discussion is focused on empathy as the future of business in tech, why it's important for developers to gain business acumen for greater success in their role, and how a new product, Yuga HQ, can help individuals and companies manage their long-term careers. Our guest today has an electrical engineering degree from Srinity Institute of Science and Technology in Hyderabad, India, an MS of Computer Science from Clemson, and has published a thesis on graph theory. He began his career as a software engineer, specifically as a kernel and distributed systems developer at NetApp. He has also worked as a principal product manager for Kony Inc. Our guest is a two-time startup founder, founding Potato P, all you developers out there, that's a palindrome, <laughs> Potato P Technologies, and currently serving as the founder and CEO of Yuga HQ, an employee retention SaaS. And he believes empathy is the best business model. He's the author of a U.S. patent for the design on how to intelligently upconvert and downconvert data structures while upgrading versions of distributed hardware systems. He is multilingual, speaking four languages, enjoys listening to deep Indian classical music, American classics like Towns Van Zandt, and is a movie trivia buff. Kieran Kanakadandi, thank you for being here today. Hey, Nigel. Thanks for having me. Sounds great. <laughs> I want to kick it off by kind of talking about your journey. Right, so you have an MS degree in computer science. You've been a kernel developer. You've been a product manager. You're a startup founder. So my question here is, what was your journey? What has been your journey into software engineering originally, mm -hmm. way back when? Sure, um, that's a great question because uh, I guess in my case, it was a very conscious decision to get into computer science and programming because. Uh, you know, the way the Indian uh, pedagogy, right? I mean, it's it's more rigid than in the US. So when I started college, uh, the very first year, uh, the way it's structured is I ended up joining mechanical engineering as a major, you know, uh, because I thought I was interested in cars and things like that. And, you know, I got admission into this college, which is, which is a pretty good college in the city, you know, uh, I live in. In fact, I live in Hyderabad right now, right? And turns out when I joined, um, you know, the first years, uh, courses are common across all majors, right? And it's a college focused on engineering. So one of the classes was programming, right? And that was more or less the first time I did any serious programming. And that just blew my mind. I mean, the whole idea of, you know, you, you code something and then you generate, it was all C. Uh, so the first programming class was in C. And, you know, it just, just, just awesome. So I would just keep coding. I would just try and find things. Um, and I also, I guess, the, one of the other things was that I always find uh, computer science uh, kind of ideologically similar to mathematics, and I was really uh, I was really fascinated by mathematics in general at school, right? And so CS was kind of like that, I guess. So when I first started programming, I mean, right? Uh, and then what I tried to do for my second year in college was to try and get an admission into the CS program, right? Mm. But turns out you needed certain grades, I guess, and I did have pretty decent grades. But they were, you know, good enough only to send me to electrical engineering. So I ended up joining electrical engineering. <laughs> and at the point, I also knew that if I did study electrical engineering as an undergrad, that's closer to CS. Uh, my, my sister was at the time already in the U.S. She was at Florida, University of Florida. And, you know, she was in the ECE program, electrical and computer engineering, which has like a significant overlap with CS. And I thought, OK, maybe 
you know, by the time I go to grad school, which was kind of what I had in mind anyway, I can focus full time on uh, CS, right? And that's pretty much exactly what I did. Uh, the rest of the programming, my electrical engineering wasn't like what I expected. It did not have a lot of overlap <laughs> because the focus was pretty heavily on like power systems and things like that, which I did not really have a whole lot of uh, interest in at all. Um, but then luckily, when I uh, did decide to go to grad school to the US, uh, I got admission into uh, Clemson, which was still for electrical engineering, uh, just like I hoped. But then because of the way, you know, universities in the US have the flexibility to take courses from pretty much anywhere on the campus. I started taking only CS classes and then I got enough prerequisites and then, you know, switched full time into CS. And uh, it was a good school, uh, you know, that, uh, that, that has a very good program on systems, you know, operating systems specifically. Uh, it's actually not as popular as it should be really, but it's one of the very few colleges in the US that at a grad school level uh, makes you build entire serious kernel modules. You know, which is one of the reasons why you'll see a lot of Clemson folks at companies like, uh, you know, VMware or Cisco or NetApp or Qualcomm, EMC, uh, my, maybe companies like Microsoft will also have them, but in their, you know, like OS teams, for example. Hmm. And is that, is that kind of why you got into more of that kernel development so much more seriously and then, and then got your job at NetApp? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because I was surrounded by people who would worship. There was this one specific professor, you know, Dr. Robert Geist, uh, he's like one of the uh, most respectable uh, professors on campus and one of the ones I have the highest respect for because teaching kernels is not easy. You know, even grading kernel homeworks is not easy, you know. Uh, and he did that. I mean, he structured a course around it uh, and uh, he was uh, uh, this very high-profile professor who would have, you know, very high-profile publications in like graphics and, you know, uh, OSS and so on and so forth, right? And so everyone around me when I got to Clemson uh, used to kind of revere this professor and that one class, right? Uh, which is generally, I mean, just that one class would get people jobs. I mean, it's it's mm. that good. So wow. because the moment you see a graduating student uh, with, uh, you know, someone who's written a device driver from scratch, for instance, I mean, it's extremely rare uh, for any of these companies. And so it means that, you know, they are good. Like when you when you want to hire them from for one of your systems companies, right? And that's kind of how I got into NetApp. Uh, and I ended up working in... Uh, the East Coast, Clemson is in South Carolina, and I started working at NetApp in their North Carolina office, uh, the, the RTP Research Triangle Park area. So the rest of it is, you know, my journey from there. But that's how I got into, you know, mainstream CS. Awesome. I love that. I love that uh, that you just were trying to do anything you could to get to get into computer science. I think that's that's so awesome. Yeah, you, you could say that because, yeah, I mean, CS, I mean, I, I mean, I've moved on from, you know, writing active code. But I still think that it is pretty mind blowing, you know, the way, you know, you structurally write code um, and then, you know, you get to that. There's very, uh, and be besides, there's a lot of interesting, it's all logically structured, right? So there's a lot of interesting constructs within it, like distributed systems, for example, right? Uh, it's one of the most enjoyable forms within software engineering because you have all these various different nodes that have to come in sync, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I had, you know, the good fortune of actually implementing one of those consensus protocols from scratch. I was part of a team, a small team that did that uh, inside the kernel at NetApp, right? Which meant wow. that we had to uh, build this consensus. They call it the Paxos consensus protocol. Okay, so we ended up implementing that. So that's actually just pure joy. I mean, academically speaking too. <laughs> but then again, you know, there's a whole lot of other context around all of this, which led me to the rest of my career path. 
<laughs> I think we'll talk about that in a bit. But yeah, absolutely, which I'm really excited to get into. So let's let's kind of talk about some some of these, these various articles that you've written, right? Mm-hmm. So I think what I love about about you is that you've you seem to put out your thoughts as you're kind of going through your journey of what you're seeing in the landscape and 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 things that you learn through your career path and and you publish them and in, in hopes of they will inspire others and they have they've you know I've definitely learned from them and I think that's kind of why I want to talk about some of those today so the the first one that I want to talk about uh is is a short post that you put on, well, I guess not so short, but a, a post that you put on LinkedIn and it's called career paths for developers. Hint, there's more than two. Uh, because I think a lot of times we sort of get in these boxes, right? Of, well, you can be this or you can be this. And you mentioned that as well in your, in your article. So I kind of want to just dive into that a little bit and um, just kind of get your thoughts on this and why did you write it? And, and yes. sort of what's, what's sort of this high level summary that, that our listeners can take away? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think it's, it's, in my view, it's extremely important for developers to think about <clears throat> the, uh, the perspective, right, of software engineering. And this was kind of what I was hinting at earlier, right? I mean, it's one thing to work on like extremely interesting tech, right, which is what drives engineers, kind of like what I talked about my own motivation to do software engineering. But turns out, you know, it all happens in a context, right? And for good or for bad, and in my view, mostly for bad, uh, you know, you are exposed only to a certain flavor of it, right? I mean, as engineers, uh, we are generally kind of convinced that, you know, the complexity of the problem you're working on or the coolness of the tech that you're working on uh, is basically it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, a lot of people believe that. In fact, I actually had, you know, like a VP of engineering or somebody like that once tell me that, you know, hey, look, uh, why do you want to switch away from engineering ever, right? Because engineering is the bottom line, quote unquote, right? And, you know, I've come to realize that's actually extremely misleading because it is actually not, right? Engineering is actually a tool. And mm-hmm. all of engineering of any kind is effectively just a tool, right? And you have a real world situation that requires a certain solution, right? For which you would leverage engineering, right? And you would use this tool to build a solution for that problem or that opportunity, uh, which is purely business, right? Mm-hmm. And the two parts that I was hinting at in that article is effectively, again, the default two are people either go on to become architects, which is like an IC, an individual contributor path, right? Or you go become a people manager. And because that's the, those are the two people you see in, like, mm-hmm. say, the first 10 years of your career, right? You may right. see impressive ones, you may see unimpressive ones, but those are the ones you are seeing. Right? right, but turns out there's many, many more paths there because, um, again, you work inside the context of a business, right, a company, uh, and so there's this whole hierarchy that I always think about in my own mind, right? So you have code, and then you have a project, and then you have a product. A product basically means that you can like it's more serious, right? And then you have a solution, which means there is a market problem for which this is a solution, right? And then you have uh, a business around it, right? And then you have a company and then you have a, a, an industry around it, right? Mm. So this this is kind of like the hierarchy. But as engineers, we are generally stuck still pretty much in the, the, the project stage, right? And so uh, the other opportunities that, uh, that engineers have as they evolve in their career uh, have a good overlap with business. In fact, the code that they write has significant overlap with business. It's just that they don't realize it, right? Because you are writing the code for that distributed system because you are trying to compete with, you know, that other distributed system vendor 
uh, which uh, is a space you are not yet in, for example, right? As a company, right? Not you personally, right? Uh, and so the other parts uh, and one of my own favorites, which I also ended up pursuing eventually is product management, right? Where uh, you map market requirements to, you know, engineering requirements, right? Uh, and that's that's an area that I strongly recommend that engineers uh, who do want to figure out what else is out there, right, to explore. Because it's not too far from engineering, but also it's far enough that you are not just stuck deep within uh, this this engineering uh, cocoon, right? Mm-hmm. So th- there's other areas. Obviously, you know, a, a startup is still a very valuable place to go Uh go be either, uh, you know, either as a founder or a founding employee. And in general, you know, one of the superpowers that engineers have is engineering, right? Which means that there's always a lot of, there's always a disproportionate supply of founders out there uh, who are business, you know, business people, right? I mean, they come from marketing or sales usually, and they're also looking, they're always looking for a, a tech co-founder, uh, contrary to, you know, popular opinion within tech communities, right? Uh, mm. That's always the case. So if you can find somebody like that, that's actually a golden combination, right? Uh, it's mm. not very easy. I mean, um, but but still, you know, that's a great place to because the, the, the learning you will have in a startup is just incomparable to pretty much yeah. anything else you can do in your career. Yeah. And there's, there's a few other parts too, like in uh, what I mentioned in the article. So like solution architecture is one. Uh, and then, you know, uh, you can eventually go to uh, completely unrelated areas too. Uh, but once you have experience uh, in one specific area, right, uh, that actually gives you more and more uh, opportunities, you know, like consulting. Uh, the one extreme case I talk about in that article is uh, uh, becoming a standards technologist, which is like a really, really niche area, but they exist. You know, the guys who sit and define what HTTP means, for example, right, mm-hmm. or what TCP means. Uh, but then, yeah, all these other parts I strongly recommend because engineering happens in a business context. So that, mm. that effectively is what I was alluding to in that um, article. So that's, that's a really good transition into another article that you talked about around business literacy and awareness for engineers. And, and you kind of describe sort of this, what I'm envisioning as sort of a spiral, right? As it kind of grows outward, you have your code and then you have a project and then you have your product and it kind of continues to spiral out. And you kind of talked a little bit about in there about how and what you just described is engineering is engineers being aware of the business that they're actually writing for. Yeah. So tell me about this, this article, why you wrote it and why you think it's important for developers to have and gain this business acumen. Oh yeah. Uh, this is actually uh, something I care a lot about also again, because, you know, uh, in the early years of my own career, you know, I used to have this strong, feeling again for the kind of work I was doing specifically, right? I mean, it's it's good to take pride in the work that you do, but it's also important to understand the context in which it's happening, you know? Like, so software engineering, right? The process of software engineering. I mean, if you look at like uh, uh, academic CS programs, they talk about software engineering programs, but the, I always thought that if they teach software engineering in college, you don't have the maturity to consume it just yet. You have to work in the industry for a bit to actually get a hang of what it is. So the whole process of software engineering still sits inside. It's a very people-centric exercise, right? It's, you know, only partly technical. It is technical, but that's only a part of it, right? Whereas the bigger picture is actually that it's a people process and you have managers, you have 
you know, like a, a VP of engineering and a CTO and so on and so forth. And so the, you have managers and you have bad managers. So there's like a combination of all of this that actually ends up creating your net experience, right? And if you take pride, it's a cumulative experience of all of this, right? And that's just software engineering. What's even more important is like, again, like, like I mentioned earlier, right? The business that your company and specifically your business unit is engaged in, right? Hmm. And as engineers, they are very rarely, engineers are very, very rarely exposed to any of this because again, you know, the people that they look up to or receive instruction from, instructions from are typically managers or architects, right? Especially hmm. in the early years. And so it's very, very important to talk to people who are not like you, right? And in fact, I mean, there's the extreme variant of this, which is actually, unfortunately, very, very common, which is how engineers believe that all other kinds of work inside the company are either unimportant or, you know, uncool, right? Mm -hmm. Both of which are spectacularly wrong. You know, the work that everybody else does is basically what is giving you your own work, right? So go talk to product managers, go talk to people who are the farthest from what you do. In fact, like sales, right? I mean you know nothing about sales. I mean, at least I knew nothing about sales, right? And when you talk to people in sales, they actually know how your product, whatever it is, right, is placed out in the market, right? Mm. And you may you may have taken a lot of pride in, I don't know, a distributed system logic or, you know, a, a front-end workflow, a complex workflow, for example. And that guy might come tell you that it's completely useless, for example, right? And eventually, and by the way, knowing this will prepare you for a lot, Right? Like, for instance, imagine layoffs happening at companies, right? I mean, how come when I'm this genius coding this beautiful piece of software, you know, how can I ever be let go, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, how can my division be cut? Because purely it's business. So that's kind of the literacy that I'm talking about that pretty much everybody inside a company should have uh, and engineers definitely because they're the farthest. They're, it's not conscious, I guess, but somehow within companies, they're kept the farthest from all of this. Hmm. Why, why do you think that, why do you think that is? Why is there that insulation placed between? Great question. Uh, is it, is it to, is it to make sure that you, we sort of maximize their productivity so that they don't have to context switch and so that they're able to kind of focus and, and produce results? I mean, no. is that kind of. No, I, I don't believe that's the goal intentionally, but in general, uh, I guess this is, I mean, I believe pretty strongly in the, in the whole concept of, I call it mindshare in general, right? Mm. Uh, or mental bandwidth, if you will. And yeah. what ends up happening is because of the nature of engineering, at least software engineering, the kind of engineering that I'm familiar with, um, it, you know, your mental bandwidth is generally occupied in building your solution, mm. right? Pretty considerably, mm. which means that systematically you are actually occupied with something that's very, very, uh, you know, mentally consuming, the way I think about it, right? Which means that you do not have you do not allocate yourself a lot of bandwidth outside of your core work to anything that is not code or technical, which mm. means that you are less likely to look at the people aspects of it. You are less likely to, I mean, for example, um, if you have a good manager, you, th you believe that, you know, all of software en engineering is good. Or if you have a bad manager, you think, you know, software engineering is bad, for example, right? But that's because you are not allocating it a whole lot of bandwidth and even lesser for, you know, the business side of things. So that's kind of where, because think about it, even if you're at a tiny piece of logic in software, you're thinking all the time. Mm -hmm. As opposed to, let's say, a sales or a marketing exercise, you are thinking, but then you are going and doing things and interacting with people just as part of your job. And mm -hmm. you have to understand, you know, the business context you're operating in. That does not at all happen in engineering. 
So do you think it almost seems like given that managers or so the software engineering managers or the architects, do you, do you see that maybe those roles could help expose the developers to other departments, maybe have interdepartment mixers or to meet people and to have sort of like brown bags of, hey, this, this is what this department does. Let's talk about what we do. And is there commonalities and things that we can do to help improve our product or our solution? Is that, does that kind of seem like something that, yeah. Yeah, no, and that, that's a great question, especially the way you put it, because, um, and that's, and the answer is yes, right? But turns out there is a huge, there's a huge problem in, in, you know, that context, which is that just far too often, the managers and architects themselves are part of this story. In fact, they grew, right, entirely mm -hmm. in this context. I mean, I mean, historically, if you've seen engineering managers, uh, a significant percentage of them become managers not by choice, right? Yeah. I mean, if you look at like, and it's, it's a pretty infamous problem within software engineering, you know, they hit some kind of a, a virtual ceiling uh, in their career inside a company, right? And then they run out of options being an IC, or maybe they are just bored, right? And then they make that switch to becoming a manager. And then just too many people dislike it, but they still put up with it because that's pretty much uh, the only option they have. And it's also extremely well-paying, right? So they just yeah. stick around with it and they just keep going, but they never had this experience themselves. So yeah. I personally still think that uh, every, every single engineer owes it to themselves, right? To go find the business context for their own education and for their own good. But in good companies, I would expect, you know, the good engineering managers and architects to understand this. In fact, I'm not even saying that everyone should just leave software engineering, right? I mean, the ones who do become engineering managers and architects, for example, if they are business aware, it's, it's awesome for everybody involved, for them and the company. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Man, you're just, you're just throwing up transitions perfect for me. So <laughs> oh, you kind of talk, you know, with that, you know, owing it to yourself to go learn about the business and kind of your happiness and your job, right? So you, you wrote an article about harmony and happiness at work <laughs> and you sort of brought up three, three pieces, right? So talk to me about that. So you're a software engineer, you know, maybe you're thinking about, okay, what's my next move? I'm unhappy. Walk us through this angle that you have with these three different pieces that maybe could help us look at our business happiness a little differently. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. I mean, actually, uh, you know, the, the article I wrote there um, is actually uh, something that, again, I learned in my own career experience and I tried to practice it and tell, you know, in fact, even the, I, mean, I used to manage a team of product managers in my most recent full-time job. And I used to tell them pretty much in all one-on-ones about how they have to interpret their job, right? Quote unquote job. And um, what I meant specifically in that article is that any job you are in, right? And th this one is not specific, specific to software engineers, pretty much any role you are in, right? Uh, founder, developer, PM, whatever. Uh, there's, there's three inevitable components, right? Pretty much in all jobs. The first part is, you know, like the reason why you are in the job in the first place, right? I mean, I'm a founder because, you know, I want to go solve this business problem, for example, or I want to go do this thing, right? For my own career. Right? I mean, there's a reason why you're doing what you're doing, right? Or you work for like uh, one of the fang companies, right? Uh, and, you know, you went there, I don't know, either for the work or the pay or, you know, brand name, whatever, right? There's a reason why you're there. So it should make sense to you, right? And then the second is there are things going on in your work that do not make sense to you, right? I mean, your manager tells you something, doesn't make any sense to you, but 
you can influence it, right? So, which means that your manager tells you to do something, but then he or she is flexible to take feedback and incorporate, for example, right? I mean, let's say someone talks about a two-week sprint versus a one-month sprint, for example, you know, hypothetically, right? And then you have a strong opinion, then you convince your manager or your management stack, and then they take your feedback. Great, right? So that's a happy situation still. And then the third component is, you know, I guess I guess it came from Amazon, this, this phrase called, this expression called disagree and commit, which I think is just pure gold, right? <laughs> which means that there are things in your job that don't make any sense to you. and There is nothing you can do about it. It's just pure nonsense, right? I mean, you know, they are doing this for no good reason. And you know, you know it better than, you know, the guys who are making this decision, maybe from past experiences or your own first-hand experience in what, uh, how the project is panning out, for example, right? But there's nothing you can do about it. So you still have to just disagree and commit to it. And all three components are inevitable in any job that you're doing as a founder, as a developer, whatever, right? And the point I'm trying to make in that blog post is, uh, you know, this is especially uh, applicable, you know, when people are thinking about job switches, right? Career switches is also true, but also job job, speci- job switches specifically. Uh, but what's important is, and the summary of that article is that you want to try and evaluate the percentage split between these three, right? Mm. Uh, you know, sense, I mean, I, I, in fact, I, ca- I originally called that article like, uh, um, you know, sense, influence, and nonsense. So mm. the idea is what is your split between these three, right? Mm. So as long yeah. as it's roughly even, right? I think you're in a good place. You're not going to get anything dramatically different if you just switch, you know, uh, because there is a part of your job that you don't like. Because in all likelihood, no matter uh, what company you go to, right, you know, take away all the marketing and the glamour and the brand name and all that, you know, fancy stuff out, right? End of the day, you are still working with people and it all just comes down to the basics. So you will have these three components and you have to deal with this. So if you have like, a decent manager and if your work is decently interesting, right, and you, you're not like shouting at the top of your voice too frequently, in general, that's a good job. <laughs> I like that. If you're not shouting loud too frequently, that's, yeah, that's there you good. Go. <laughs> I, I like that. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. That's, that's wonderful. I really, I really like that. The sense, influence and nonsense. I like that. That's, that's a great way to kind of mentally think about, think about that balance. Okay, wonderful. So the next question that I have for you, uh, and, and in our pre conversation, I think you said you were really excited about this. So I'm really excited to, to dig into this. And, and that is the my interest in cultural differences mm-hmm. and how we do business across cultures, how we come together, right, with respect and empathy to solve problems and to achieve our goals. So my question is, what differences and similarities between software culture in India and in the U.S. have you seen or experienced? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a very, very good question. I mean, something that people typically take for granted. In fact, I recently wrote on a short post on LinkedIn about how uh, people should not, uh, I mean, if, if it's, for example, uh, a U.S.-India type company, right, company that has an office both in the U.S. and in India, um, you know, they should refrain from blocking meetings on Friday mornings, US time, right? Because that's typically Friday evening, Friday night, India, right? And then people still just routinely do it. I mean, only because people are not pushing back. And I personally think that, you know, 
again, people owe it to themselves to push back on unfairly timed meetings. Because if it's Friday night for you, it is Friday night, you know, for you, right? And it's not like you're starting your work on a Monday night, you start Monday morning, right? Anyway, so there are definitely a lot of cultural nuances uh, that go either way. But specifically inside companies, right? Uh, Okay, I'll talk about the similarities first. I mean, because software engineering and software product companies are typically, uh, there's obviously a lot of this is tangible, right? I mean, you're shipping something, you're coding something, and then, you know, you use software tools, right? And processes for product product management, whatever else you're doing, right? So all of that is fairly tangible, which means that all of that is actually like very, very similar. It's it's not too different. I mean, there is some nuances. Uh, there are obviously some nuances there which are very market specific, right? Like, for example, uh, for good or for bad, uh, the, the US market is extremely big, right? And in general, any entrepreneur anywhere, especially if they're building B2B, right? Their goal is to eventually sell into the US, right? Because there's just such a large market out there that you can actually make a lot of good money, right? Uh, and that's gradually evolving. Like, for example, I mean, the last five years or so, uh, the whole building and selling within India thing for Indian companies itself is taking off like in a really big way in startups, right? Mm. Uh, But then turns out because you're building and selling for the uh, US, that could have some impact on like teams that are market facing, right? When you are working out of India. Uh, But then the software engineering process is very similar. It's all sprints, the same same skill set. And you have a big engineer supply in India, right? Mm. Which is a huge plus and, you know, like, the, 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 which is also a good reason why the startup scene in India is just booming right now, right? Mm, because yeah. I think it has hit that tipping point where there is enough business know-how as well, mm. right? And there's learning. This company is called, this company is like Freshworks, if you've heard of, uh, that, yeah. you know, that yeah, got yeah. completely, that got built in India entirely and just recently went public on NASDAQ, uh, which is kind of like, a, and it's a SaaS company. It's like, a, you know, like a full stack, uh, you know, uh, marketing and sales and services and, you know, things like that, right? Uh, sorry, customer support, I mean. Uh, so there is a whole bunch of companies like that uh, that are just starting to come up, right? Now, those are the similarities, therefore. And again, business models that evolved in the US are kind of like a textbook for these businesses in India. But the uh, the differences, I guess, are what I've seen working in the offices in the US and in India is... There's one very obvious difference. I mean, and I have to say it, and you know, I, I don't have any bias of my own, but it's just just the way it is structured. Also, I worked in the East Coast in like a, a system software company, you know, which is not Silicon Valley, right? Mm, <laughs> so yeah. I guess one difference I noticed and I was startled and took me a long time to adjust personally was age. You know, like the average age in the team I was in where I was shipping that distributed system software, for example, was like 37. Or, or even higher, 40 maybe. I was 31 at the time, okay? And I was the youngest on my team because, you know, kernel teams are generally a lot of very, very senior people. You have, you get like, uh, you get good at it. Like, it takes a very long time to become good at it. It's not at all like how the rest of software works in general. Maybe that right. could be a reason. But in general, I've noticed that, you know, that's one contextual difference. And the next senior engineer on that team there was 37. And the guys above were 50, 50, 50. Okay, that was the team config. <laughs> and that's kind of like, you know, obviously anecdotal. But then the average age in that entire office was fairly high. But in India, it's shockingly, dramatically low, right? Mm. The, the average. And in fact, you know, I mean, this is actually a fun thing for people. The last company that I used to work for, if you had anyone over 35 on your, uh, you know, 
a company cricket team right and cricket is a very popular game they would actually give you a few free runs <laughs> so you know it's it's just that uncommon here so that kind of blew my mind the first time i talked i don't play any cricket at all personally i'm one of the yeah. 10 indians that you know don't follow or play cricket uh, but then every time this thing ha- came right i mean this event came in this company people would you know flock around my cube because they want to recruit me right <laughs> it was bizarre but anyway it was fun uh, which which leads me to the other thing right i mean you know uh, you, you did talk about you know what some other contextual differences are one thing therefore i always noticed was and i don't think it's a function of age but in general you know offices in india seem to have this jolly feeling you know hmm. for for whatever reason right i mean it just seems i wouldn't say less serious but it's yeah it's kind of like less serious you know hmm. people work hard and so on and so forth but there is still like a sense of a jolly but the, the offices in the us typically had this slight sense in my limited experience of being slightly uptight right yeah. and and it's yeah. not like you know and the company i was in was actually a very friendly one too i mean they had every you know friday a beer bash which was actually mm-hmm. you know where people just hang out netapp was the name of the company i used to work for and so despite that i generally get a feeling that the average everyday situation is kind of that it has its own pluses and minuses because you know sometimes it comes with like some professional professionalism skips in india i have noticed like i mean i would expect i mean if i send an email out to someone i generally always expect that you know i am getting a response sometimes that doesn't happen in india and i wish i mean things are changing but that those are slight you know like a 1% 2% misses in my view but i mean I, you know that's kind of what i think of the you know differences in this and are there things that that you think that we could learn from each other's cultures and sort of our work ethic or our 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 business sense or yeah yeah no i agree yeah i mean in fact i mean there there are definitely some things and uh, this this last thing i talked about for example right i mean the non seriousness of i wouldn't say it's non seriousness i mean obviously i'm you know being extreme if i said that but i i kind of think that that's actually a big plus right i mean you don't want to think of your yeah. office as a pressure yeah. cooker so yeah. Yeah. uh that's something that it's also very manager dependent company dependent and those things don't change you know no matter what part of the planet you're on right but then i think personally that you know uh that sense of like uh maybe give your work slight a 1% less weight is something that probably mm-hmm. uh you know us officers can take from the india one right mm-hmm. uh because yeah. end of the day it's just people right i mean so yeah. that's good i'm not Definitely. saying that everyone is like that in india but like i said the vibe is kind of like that no matter mm-hmm. what right i mean there's always yeah. a, a fun cafeteria that people go to there is table tennis tables it's not uh, and companies in the us too had and in fact i used to play a lot of table tennis in, in the us one too but still contextually there is that difference whereas the india ones can definitely you know close out round off this professionalism problem i'm talking about i mean i sometimes see mm-hmm. that you know i send out an email or a message sometimes and uh there's no guarantee that i'll get a response back you know mm. which is I, i don't know i i still can't wrap my head around it when that happens but it does happen mm. so you know the sense of yeah. professionalism that does come with you know being relatively upright or sorry uptight uh, is actually a huge plus and in fact personally mm. i would think i've been you know you do want to treat work as work right i, I don't you know i'm not saying you know just uh, work and friends and family is all just one right necessarily yeah, yeah. keep it separate fine but then you know 
uh, have this healthy mix. Well, I think it, it. I think that idea of the jovialness. I think that brings a little bit more of that playfulness and that that creativity, possibly, yeah. to your work, oh, right? Where you're able to kind of contribute even more to your work because you're oh, yeah. allowing yourself to have those creative experiences and things with your yeah. the people that you're working with. Spot on. Yeah, I agree completely. Okay, so we've talked about happiness at work. We've talked about business acumen. Now let's kind of shift to the other side of this. We talked about it sort of as the position of the employee. Let's talk about it from the employer perspective mm-hmm. and specifically around hiring and retaining talent. Uh, you, you wrote another article called Dear Manager, Always Be Rehiring. And you mentioned some staggering numbers on just the costs of losing employees. Can you just walk us through this post and, and tell us about, you know, why it's important to retain talent? Oh, yeah. Um, so the past year or two, despite the, you know, the current recession that everyone is talking about, uh, employee retention has become a significantly serious problem, a more significantly serious problem than it already was, which always was a serious problem. Uh, but the way... But the way uh, you know, um, companies approach it is not always the way it should be, right? Uh, because they do not realize the return on investment in making a conscious effort on retaining people. And the numbers I was referring to come from this research from a firm called Gallup. And they do a lot mm-hmm. of people research and things like that, right? And so what they say is that the cost of losing a junior employee is 50% their annual pay. Okay, and a mid-level employee is 100% their annual pay, and a senior employee is 200% their annual pay. Right? That's the. I mean, it's obviously you know not accurate or anything, but it's kind of indicative, right? And mm-hmm. it's also realistic when you think about, let's say, an average developer, let's say who's a mid-level employee, right, and is making I don't know 200k for example, right, and you lose this person, you know, the impact is at least 200k in that company, and this is ignoring the revenues lost by, I don't know, not shipping that feature, for example, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because Mm -hmm. what ends up happening is whatever this person is building, for instance, right? Uh, In in software, for instance, uh, there's this whole notion of tribal knowledge, for example, right? I mean, always worry about the political correctness of it, the the terminology, but you know what I mean, right? So there's a lot of historic knowledge you build over time when you build a code base. And all of that is just lost when this person leaves, right? And those are mm. intangible, but there's even like tangible misses. Like, for example, there's a six-month window of no productivity in that, you know, in that seat, right? Because uh, you have to, this person is ramping down and then the new person uh, will take some time to get hired to begin with and you have to spend money to hire and you pay a premium, right, in hiring this person. And there's a recruiter, there's an agency cost involved, for example. And even when you do find this, you know, this great next person, and, you know, they join, it's going to take many months before they get to, you know, being productive. And even so, you know, all of this historic knowledge is just gone, right? So the net impact is just dramatically high, which means that, again, and that's kind of where I put that range, you know, like 50K to 700K when a company loses an employee, a senior employee who makes, let's say, 350K, right? Um, yeah, obviously, you know, the impact is way more uh, because uh, the you know, again, the, the costs involved are pretty high and the way companies approach 
is generally very, very reactive. You know, the way companies approach this problem. So let's say I resign as a product manager or whatever, and then my manager suddenly gets activated, I guess, and then starts to make a counter offer, for example, right? And mm-hmm. which is spectacularly useless because by the time I have already been job hunting for like two to three months, it's not like, you yeah. know, I decide to get a job and then I get an email, an offer letter in my inbox the next morning, right? So there's no <laughs> such thing. So I have been right. invested at it, which means that, you know, the manager has been in the dark. So which is kind mm-hmm. of like the, the motivation for, you know, uh, how I'm approaching, you know, software, I mean, sorry, my own startups, products. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, again, wonderful transition. Let's talk about that. <laughs> Let's talk about Yuga, right? I mean, you're, yeah. you're figuring out how to predict and prepare, right, for yeah, this employee exactly. turnover. Exactly. Um, which is exactly what you're describing in this in this article. So, Yuga, walk us through what it is and 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 why you're on this journey. Yeah, great. So, um, what I'm trying to do with Yuga is basically again, you know, by the way, I mean, I've come out to uh, build a startup now again, my second time, and the area that I was specifically interested in, and I am interested in, and I'm I personally passionate about is in general careers, you know, a lot of what we've talked so far is also careers, right? And mostly careers in tech, because that's the part that part of the world that I am familiar with. So my idea is to try and build solutions that enable people to have long-term careers, right? I mean, and I want people to consciously consider, I mean, like, for example, I'm a huge um, non-fan. I don't know what the antonym of fan is, but I'm definitely a non-fan of the rat race, you know, Mm. I mean, on how people just go through with it all, you know, and spend decades and then regret it, you know, way late in their uh, career. Right? Oh man, you know, why did I work so hard for, for example? Uh, right, right, right. So that's that's something that I personally care a lot about because that that has implicit impact on like all kinds of things in you know in, in people's lives and society and you know in all aspects of life, for example. Uh, and so that's one angle I'm specifically interested in which means that I want to encourage people to think long-term and the long-term implications of what they decide, uh, right? And so that's the context in which employee retention matters because I know from my own career experiences that, you know, you want to try and solve something, um, you know, evolutionary as opposed to revolutionary. If I go if I go, go out and start telling everyone, hey, you know, hey, start thinking about your, your long-term life goals, right? And work backwards from it. That's a very, very difficult sell. So, because, you know, it's probably a B2C product. In fact, I tried to do that for a bit. You know, my uh, my first iteration to this was to try and build a career planner for individuals uh, with a manager module on top of it, where the manager can learn an individual career plans. And, you know, we tried to build that to be a B2C solution such that it's portable across companies for the individual, but then the manager has special access to it. But then uh, what's obviously extremely underrated when you are starting out is distribution and you know sales in general mm-hmm. right and so that product model as much as it made sense to me was extremely hard for me to sell because you know the tools that managers typically use are the tools that their hr teams give them right, right. and so if i try to sell something outside of that you know it's again like uh, mental bandwidth what i was talking about mm-hmm. earlier you know mm-hmm. my mental bandwidth is allocated for something else right so this is yet another tool for me to go do something with on top of which I have to make the decision to buy, right? So uh, that obviously, you know, what what you do is you take an idea to the market and then you get feedback and then you evolve, right? So that's kind of where Mm -hmm. we arrived at uh, the first pit stop 
you know, hopefully in a long journey to find analytics uh, that help companies, right? So we can get a foot into the door at companies, at enterprises specifically, uh, companies that are like relatively big, right? Because there are a lot of managers in companies that are at least 500 or 1,000 employees. And so the idea there is to uh, give analytics, but based on manager insights. So that's kind of what we are going after, you know, as a first stop. So we'll help identify, you know, patterns uh, in how managers are predicting attrition and how it's, uh, you know, actually playing out. And then, you know, what actions they can take to fix this uh, with that, you know, proactive knowledge. So that's kind of what we are focused on around now. And in fact, because of our, you know, focus evolution, it's not a full-blown pivot, but it's kind of, uh, it's definitely still a change in going and targeting at the, you know, the individual employee to like a full-blown company, uh, HR and CXO context, right? These are all analytics for the CXOs, you know, because they typically want to see how each individual team uh, is performing, right? And I want to be able to predict, uh, you know, based on past data on how managers are responding to these questions. So it's effectively a manager pulse survey tool, right? So the idea is uh, uh, to build the product for the enterprise, which means that, you know, I am right uh, in the middle of, or rather I'm just starting out a pre-seed fund round right now, because you cannot build an enterprise uh, product on no code. I can't, I mean, I have been a product manager for a low code platform myself, and you know, I cannot build all the, you know, the serious things that they expect in enterprise. So that's kind yeah. of like, yeah. you know, where I am with the startup right now. Excellent. Excellent. And you mentioned, so a couple of things, you talked about evolutionary versus revolutionary. So just to make sure that, that I'm understanding it correctly, the career planning uh, tool that you originally started out with, you felt was so far, you know, past what tools people have that you consider that sort of revolutionary. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Fair right. enough. That, that's a fair way to put it. Yeah. And then the idea of the evolutionary being that you kind of figure out a way to sort of slide in where these managers are already kind of doing things, but then you're providing more value add there. And then that becomes sort of evolutionary. Exactly. Exactly. So you take one step at a time. And then once we, our current, you know, in fact, our current pitch is that we'll first help companies identify problems in employee attrition and, you know, like their own manager effectiveness at all of this, right? And their own views. For example, you know, for, for three quarters, if I keep saying that, hey, look, you know, Kiran is very happy. He's going to, you know, rock at this job for the next many, many years, right? And then one find I just dropped my resignation, right? I mean, it means that the manager was completely off, right? Mm-hmm. And his own management stack better know this and kind of aggregate. When you aggregate this across various teams inside your enterprise, uh, you actually get some really rich insights. Mm-hmm. And this is evolutionary also because... Uh, I did not invent this entirely. All HR teams in large companies do this. You know, they talk to managers either through like manual surveys or in like in some mm-hmm. extreme cases, they even do one-on-ones periodically, right? With managers to gather this kind of insight about each individual employee. And they do this thing called mm-hmm. succession planning, for example, right? And succession planning is something that for good or for bad uh, has historically been limited only to like executives, right? If you're a director or a VP and above, they typically have a succession plan for everyone inside the company, right? At that level. Mm. But obviously the future of work is just so individual skewed. I mean, and that's the big revolution going on right now within tech, right? That you have to have a succession plan for every employee, right? You cannot Mm. just have it for executives. So 
So yoga will help, you know, plan for all of that. Uh, and again, that is therefore in my hope <laughs> and my thinking evolutionary. Hmm. And can you share with us kind of uh, what you feel like your moat is? You know, we refer a lot in startup world. What is your moat, right? What differentiates you from from the next next startup? Oh, yeah. So there's a whole bunch of software products out there already that try and address this problem. And in my view, and in, okay, this category is called, you know, employee engagement tools, right? I mean, um, uh, they typically do an employee pulse survey, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which is trying to get a pulse of the employees. And in fact, uh, kind of the whole idea of that suite of products that evolved in the last decade or so is that historically companies in the company employee equation, companies were the dominant one, right? Mm. Uh, and the employee just receives whatever the company gives them. But turns out the idea of all of these products was to try and give employees a voice, right? Which means that I asked them, hey, how engaged are you, right? Because again, they realize that there is a lot of business impact in all of this, right? Sure. And then they ask all these questions and derive aggregate analytics from that and present them to the CXOs and HR teams. Uh, but turns out, in my view, they went a bit too far. I mean, employees should have voice, obviously, because, you know, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm all for it. You know, I'm a strong proponent of great culture and, you know, things like that. Uh, but turns out, you know, when a company is big enough, and my focus is definitely only bigger companies this time, you know, companies that are at least 500 or 1,000 employees, you have managers and managers are actually the ones who determine a significant part of the employee experience, right? I mean, you, you know, the famous quote about, you know, how people don't leave companies, they leave managers. You know, mm-hmm. they don't quit yeah. companies, they quit managers, right? Yeah. And it's very, very true. Anyone mm. who's worked like even a couple of years in any company knows this is exactly true, right? But yeah. turns out, you know, all of these tools, the way they operate is they go directly to the employee and they derive implicit analytics about the manager, right? But turns out it is the manager's charter, you know, to manage these people and to retain these people. And the manager is actually accountable, right? It's one of the KPIs that they are measured on, on how well they are able to retain people. So mm. that is effectively what we want to focus on, the manager purely, right? And get their insights. They better be good at their job. And if they are not, you know, help them, right? Uh, yeah. Because end of the day, it's not like, you know, the end, the, the end engineer or the end product manager, the IC, for example, no matter how cool your, your employee engagement product is, you know, that has very little to do with what they actually do. Right. They are an engineer who are bothered by a manager, for example. Right. Or the workload or the type of work and things like that. You know, Mm -hmm. that should happen in one on ones and, you know, other conversations between the manager and the engineer. Right. So end of the day, the manager is the right place to start. And that's kind of what we are building on. So that effectively is our mod. You know, grounds up on the manager. And eventually, once we start building solutions for the problem we'll help identify, we will focus on individuals. Right. So it's kind of going the the other way. So on Twitter, kind of going going back to, you know, your journey and, and and you know what you've just talked about. On Twitter you mention empathy as the best business model. How how does empathy play into employee retention? Uh, I believe pretty strongly uh, on on this, you know, this whole idea of empathy, which is almost completely ignored because again, like I said, managers take a reactive approach to retention typically, right? But turns out, you know, 
empathy comes in all forms and it's obviously important in all aspects of right or all aspects of life but in companies and careers specifically right uh for managers and companies to understand what an employee actually wants right and not just a published culture right on your you know marketing website for example you know you want to have it at the most grassroots level so between the manager and the employee so that's where real enablement needs to happen and you will retain the employee if you empathize with where they are coming from and where they want to go in their own lives right and there's very very little to do there if you look at any uh you know employee engagement tool or any hr tool that we all use at companies right uh they are all designed obviously around company goals right and and they all structure uh their process uh trying to fit the employee into the company right but i believe pretty strongly that the right way for long term success especially in the future of work right i mean the pandemic changed everything for the world so you if you want to be successful in the future you know you have to think from the employee perspective right it's it's not a nice to have anymore it used to be a nice to have for the longest time in human history i guess but now it's no longer the case and you have to empathize right because the cost of losing employees is just too high definitely in tech probably other industries too but empathy is the only way out you learn where they're coming from what they want in their life right uh, and career and enable it i love that i love that and so you have all this varied experience right from you know growing up in school in as a as a kernel developer now as a ceo founder of your startup do you have any book recommendations um don't read a whole lot of books i mean it's, it's ironic that there's, there's this whole bunch of books right behind me but i yeah. don't really <laughs> read a lot of books almost at all um I mean I did read the Steve Jobs's biography for example it's just a very very interesting story I would but I wouldn't say that's a particularly strong recommendation I mean, there's a bunch of essays I would still recommend like for example the the famous uh, Paul Graham one on uh you know doing things that don't scale it's mm. you know it's a, it's a brilliant essay um but I don't uh, it, it's very hard to implement but you know it's still very very insightful right uh because i mean what i mean the thing with books is uh i mean i like op-eds and you know like essays far more sure, than books sure. because there's sure. something tangible right and fairly consumable in my view and easily shareable <laughs> i guess mm, yeah uh, so that's kind of where i come from like i mean i do like uh, for example one of those books right behind me is zero to one from by peter thiel i never read the book but i've seen enough talks by peter thiel that i thought you know i want to have this book <laughs> i bought it just in but, case yeah <laughs> <laughs> but what about peter thiel says in his talks right i mean about how you have to build i mean i'm not even saying that that's the only way to build it right but he talks about how you have to build very opinionated products right mm. it's kind of revolutionary in what he's saying still but you know you want to be aware that you know uh how he talks about this this monopolies that actually always rule right uh, in, in companies in in each given individual market because they typically either create the market or just completely dominate the market like google for search or you know mm. facebook for social networking and things like that and all the others are also there so mm. uh he believes strongly that and and i i believe pretty strongly that you know a lot of this comes down to the individuals that start these companies and run these companies right so it's good to know you know that that viewpoint there is a lot of nuance which is kind of what i was talking about in the revolutionary versus evolutionary and not mm-hmm. every place is silicon valley which makes like the internet kind of gives gives you the illusion that you know everyone lives in silicon valley but obviously we don't right 
So SEO is to blame. So all the advice you get for, <laughs> you know, for startups are extremely focused on Silicon Valley. But obviously that has nothing to do with like your specific either geography or, you know, like B2B and enterprise, for example, profoundly underrated. You know, the majority mm. companies that get formed and built successfully and sold that nobody knows or cares about are B2B, right? Mm. Uh, but then, you know, like, uh, I mean, think about how people talk about Facebook as, you know, a great tech company, right? I mean, not, I'm going to take anything away from them. And there's obviously a whole bunch of brilliant engineers there, right? But then there are other companies, like, I mean, co- the companies that I talked about, like where all these kernel developers work, for example, VMware, like NetApp or you know, okay, things have evolved. So you want to look at cloud companies today, right? Maybe not NetApp. But what these companies do is generally extremely complex, but they only sell to large enterprises, right? So very few people even know or care about them. And there's a lot of business opportunities in B2B, which is kind of my evolutionary angle that I was talking about. Yeah. So, yeah. so there's a lot of nuance, but it's important to know these points of view, right? Because you want to be able to think clearly when you think about like this Peter Thiel point of view or you know, the Paul Graham point of view. So yeah, those definitely. And so in the intro, I mentioned that you are a fan of deep Indian classical music. <laughs> Do you have any, any recommendations off the top of your head for the listeners to dive into? Otherwise we can, we could add some to the show notes. Yeah. I think that's, that's useful because you know, the, the names are complex. I mean, there's this singer that I listen to, uh, he, he's no more, but his name is Mangalampalli Balamurali Krishna. It's a, Mm. fairly complex name it's very indian isn't um and uh you know he has composed a lot of compositions too but you know most i'm from the south of india so south indian classical music is uh you know most of those compositions are really old right uh and there is a there's a whole subculture about singing them Right. And there's a lot, I mean, I don't know why, but there's not a whole lot of new classical music that's cre- that gets created, mm-hmm. maybe because of the definition of classical music, I guess. Uh, but there is a lot of, uh, uh, there's a lot of rich uh, culture around it. Right. Mm. So he's one of the biggest names in that context. And I really like, uh, you know, the way, he, the way he sings. And then, you know, I mean, the people consider him a genius. So he's definitely one of, you know, again, we can tweet that out maybe, for example, and I can add some YouTube links to check out. But yeah, Mangalampalli is a, a brilliant composer. There's a whole bunch of uh, others too. And also, you know, I mean, I'd be amiss if I did not mention Indian film music because and mm. I, I do listen to, like, like I said, you know, I have a wide variety of music like Towns Van Zandt or, uh, you know, anybody else uh, from, from a few others from the Western world too. But most Indians, I mean, and I'm like any, any average Indian, listen to Indian film music because the majority of music that gets produced and consumed in India comes from movies, right? <laughs> because, you know, historically movies in India have had uh, songs, you know, with a music video inside the movie. So that culture is just foundational. I mean, it's not like, a, uh, it's not a musical. It's not La La Land, right? So any average movie has these. Uh, screenplays get messed up big time because of that because you know <laughs> you know somebody is like deep in the middle of a, an extremely dramatic scene and then they suddenly uh, dance and show but then uh, that song has a life outside of the movie hmm. so I listen to a lot of those there's this composer called A.R. Rahman uh, who is you know who I'm a huge fan of like again most of India is so yeah he's definitely somebody to check out as well 
Awesome. Well, we'll uh, I'll I'll work with you, and we'll get some some links there, and we'll put yeah, those yeah. in the show notes so Definitely. people can can check those out. One other thing that you mentioned when I was reading, you know, kind of researching about you, and and in a Twitter post, you mentioned uh, in your background, you mentioned Erdos number two. Yeah. Tell us what that means and what it is. Oh, and that's actually kind of like a a side note to what I was uh, doing. It's not so much you know systems or kernel. So uh, as a grad student at Clemson. Uh, I published uh, a thesis, a master's thesis uh, on graph theory on this topic called uh, orientation distance graphs, which means, you know, you have a graph uh, and it can have an orientation where, you know, each of the, uh, you know, edges in the graph will have a direction. Okay, you'll have to recollect accurately, but, <laughs> uh, you know, so uh, they would have a distance from, let's say that there's two graphs, right? I mean, uh, they're the same graph, but then the orientation of the edges is different, right? Uh, which means that you just flip one and then you get to the other graph, right? Flip one edge, the direction on one edge and you get to the other graph. And so the distance between these orientations is what they call orientation distance graph. Again, that's that's too much detail, but the, the point there was uh, I published this paper with my professor, uh, Dr. Wayne Goddard, and, uh, you know, uh, so he was... Uh, super smart and and I've seen a lot of smart people over the years and he's to this day one of the smartest people I have ever met mm-hmm. and he's uh, he had a PhD from MIT in fact he had two PhDs you know one one from MIT and turns out the story about the Erdos number is um, there is this mathematician called Paul Erdos okay there was and he was singularly the most prolific mathematician I think in the history of mathematics I guess in in like published research right because he's published just so many papers and collaborating with just so many people across the world that it kind of became like a standard within the mathematics community. And this professor of mine was, uh, he has a dual appointment. You know, he's both a professor of math and, and CS. And because this thesis was in graph theory, right? Um, the, published, the paper I published went to a mathematics journal, actually. You know, it's called Discussion is Mathematic, uh, Mathematica. I think. <laughs> anyway, so uh, the idea there is, you know, my professor was one of the ones that published a paper along with um, Paul Erdos, right? And so the way the Erdos number is described is, you know, how many hops away from Paul Erdos, the man himself, are you, right? So if you, Paul Erdos's Erdos number is zero, right? And, you know, Dr. Wayne Goddard's would be one, right? And therefore mine is two. So it's actually, I only have one publication and I never went back to any mathematics, but turns out, you know, uh, this is pretty coveted even within mathematics communities, right? I mean, if someone has two or three, they're considered pretty cool. Uh, I'm not remotely as cool, but then, you know, my one paper got me that, uh, tr- that trivia. I saw someone, you know, tweet about the Erdos number the other day on, uh, in like a completely unrelated context, you know, and I thought, okay, wow, this is, I mean, and very few people even know this, uh, right? I mean, this concept. And then I thought it's it's interesting that you know I'm even related to it in some form, so I just tweeted out. I love <laughs> what it. Yeah. Meant. Fun little tidbit, fun little kernel, if you will. About yeah. You. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, perfect. Well, we are we are coming up to time, so I'd love to move to our very last section here, which is called building bits and bytes. And it's a lightning round, and I ask all my guests. It's four questions. Are you ready? Yeah. First question. Mm-hmm. Why do you build software? So 
software is probably the most powerful way and most easily accessible also. I mean, now that I'm past the, you know, just the charm of writing code, uh, I believe that's actually the most, uh, you know, the, the biggest reason is how you can build a lot of seriously impactful things without setting up a factory, for example, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so the upfront investment, I mean, and one of the things that's kind of underrated and when people diss VC, for example, I always think about this one specific nuance that everybody misses, right? The beauty of software and especially venture-backed software or even bootstrap software for that matter is that even folks that are not traditionally rich can go build companies. Mm. And mm. you can have a dramatic impact on the world, right? Mm. So I guess that's... Software has equal opportunity. Yeah, effectively, right? More than, much more than anything else. I mean, you want to manufacture chairs, you want to manufacture drones, for example, whatever else you want to do, that's physical, right? Mm -hmm. Bits versus bytes that we talked yeah. about. Yeah, that's definitely, I mean, in software, that's, uh, uh, that's extremely empowering. Right? Who is your cheerleader or your support system? Uh, my wife, definitely. It's just kind of like a backbone because, you know, if you, if you look at like the kind of things we talked about, all these transitions, not easy. So, mm, yeah. uh, you know, you make international relocations and then you make serious careers, which is you give up on paycheck and so on and so forth, right? Yeah, not easy. I don't recommend them to everyone either, but obviously my wife has kind of been like my backbone throughout all of this. So, mm. definitely extremely grateful. <laughs> what about the best advice you've ever received? Um, it's one that always keeps coming to my mind. I don't think I even follow it very well, but it's surprisingly insightful. And I got it in my sixth grade from a sixth grader. <laughs> so, uh, interestingly, what happened was that was pretty much the first time I was playing any soccer, football. We call it football yeah. in India, right? And I was on the field and I was more or less standing at just one place, right? And then this classmate of mine comes up to me and tells me, man, you have to go to the ball. The ball won't come to you, right? I thought, wow, I still do not follow it. Like, for example, you know, in finding customers or whatever I'm trying to do, I have to put effort in that direction, right? Mm -hmm. And the ball is always moving. Uh, I, I don't know, that just keeps coming back to my mind. I'm still not good at practicing it, you know, whatever this insightful sixth grader told me. <laughs> but that, I think, is pretty awesome. I do. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Last question, any tech or any tools you're using to help solve everyday problems? Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm big on, at least in my own mind, right? I'm kind of big on productivity hacks in general. So I use a whole bunch of things. Uh, I, I'm, I'm big on keyboard shortcuts. Comes from my developer mm. days, I guess. Uh, but I, I, apart from, you know, doing things for keyboard shortcuts, the other thing I do is I use a couple Chrome plugins. Uh, one is called the Marvelous Suspender. Right, and what it does is, uh, if you do, if you are on your browser and there is a tab that you have not accessed in an hour, it suspends that tab and frees memory. Okay, Ooh, and yeah. so when you are, uh, and I'm generally, I like to think I'm fairly disciplined with my tabs, so I don't have a whole lot of whole lot of tabs open, but I do want to kind of keep that in control, right? So in fact, the other plugin that I use is also in that same context, um, and what that does is basically it doesn't it disallows me from opening the nth tab. Right, and you can configure n. So mm. I kind of keep it at six. My, I mean, I can't open my sixth tab, and that is called uh, the tab manager. Tab manager plus. That's, what, that's called tab manager plus. 
and I recommend this pretty strongly because you know Chrome is <laughs> all-consuming. So mm -hmm. you know you want to have tools like this. So, yeah. Very handy. Yeah. I love it. Well, thank you. So, where can people find you on the web? Oh, so I'm on LinkedIn definitely, but yeah, on Twitter, which is kind of where I'm relatively, and I'm loving the platform. I'm only relatively uh, active uh, more recently, uh, and I'm you know at non pedantic on Twitter. <laughs> so that's my handle, uh, and people can find me right there. Awesome. We'll make sure to uh, add that in the show notes as well. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk career paths, hiring and retaining talent. Empathy is the best business model, the importance of software engineers exploring outside their code bubble to gain business acumen, finding your work balance through the idea of sense, influence, and nonsense, and how businesses and specifically managers can use your product, HQ, to help predict and prepare for employee turnover. It was an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. Well, likewise, fantastic conversation. Thank you so much, Nigel. One thing Karen said that stuck with me during our pre-show conversation, and I want to leave you all with now, is this. Software is glamorized for all of its complexity, but at the end of the day, it's all about people. Thank you for listening to this episode of Building With People For People, the Unfiltered Build podcast. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and if you like what you heard, please leave a review. If you're building something that is interesting and aims to solve a human problem and would like to be a guest on the show, please send me an email at jointhepodcast at unfilteredbuild.com. Until next time, go build with people.